from Canada Land, this is Oppo. I'm Jen Gerson in Calgary, and I'm opposed to Justin Ling. I'm Justin Ling in Toronto, and I'm opposed to Jen Gerson. Today, we are going to talk about a whole new deal for First Nations. This time, they'll get it right. Right? <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We're also going to talk about Patrick Goddamn Brown. Lastly, we will discuss populism in Canada. Before we get started, thanks to our sponsor, FreshBooks, the cloud accounting software that I just signed up for. I'm told it saves small business owners two days a month in paperwork and gets them paid up to five days faster. For your 30-day free trial, go to freshbooks.com oppo and enter oppo in the how did you hear about us section. We're going to talk about Patrick Goddamn Brown. Okay. Yeah, listen, I'm, I'm tired of hearing about Patrick Brown, but unfortunately, Patrick Brown has decided that we need to keep talking about Patrick Brown. And this is setting up all of Ontario politics for this huge showdown, and it is tough to look away. The Ontario Progressive Conservatives have a massive liability and a massive problem, and his name is Patrick Brown. Because even if you believe that Patrick Brown has been you know, the subject of some kind of like liberal hit job and that these allegations are completely false. And, you know, he's this innocent victim in all of this. He has proven that he is absolutely willing to torpedo his party's chances at re-election in order to salvage his own political reputation. And that, if you were a member of the of the Ontario PC, should be a major problem for you. Yeah, I, I've been amazed by his willingness to just go all in on this. I mean, he's just throwing everything at the wall and you're seeing a really kind of surprising number of people in Ontario, probably more so on the right of the PC party, standing behind him and basically going to a, into a civil war over this. There has been in the last, you know, again, 24 to 48 hours prior to us taping this, there has been an exceptionally organized and well-scripted campaign to not only discredit the women involved, but to try and redeem and rebuild Patrick Brown's reputation. And this has come in, a, in the form of um, you know, planned interviews on global TV with a you know apparently sympathetic reporter in front of a fireside chat kind of soft lighting fireside chat kind of environment. You know, two witnesses to discredit that the women's claims have clearly been shopped around to several competitive outlets. This has been timed with Patrick Brown claiming that he didn't resign. You know, three weeks after he resigned. So like this is all part of a very clear strategy that Patrick has chosen to enact. I think the second part of that strategy is what I will call shitstorming, which is that you just literally just throw so much confusing, competing, irrelevant shit at the wall that you make it impossible for an average Joe member of the public to really follow the thread of the allegations. And so the average Joe member of the public goes, well, fuck it. I can't. This clearly something there's where there's smoke, there's fire. Clearly something's going on. There must have been something. He must have been set up by someone. It, it works among members of the public. But for people who actually work in political strategy or, or create these strategies or work in political media who see how this sausage gets made, we know a campaign when we see one. I've been actually really taken aback by how many you know actual political operatives and political workers who are watching what's happened, who are just repulsed by, by this approach. Because to go shitstorm against a political opponent, against a fellow public figure, that's legit. You're, that's fair game. That is politics. But he's pulling the shit out against two young women who have made allegations of sexual misconduct against him. And not only do I think that that is 
not super fair, but I would also point out that I think that that was just unnecessary. It was just a really unnecessarily aggressive approach. If Patrick Brown had come out forward and said, look, I've not engaged in any sexual misconduct, but, you know, I can, I, in the case of the second allegation, I was this woman's boss. There was clearly an age difference, you know, with the benefit of hindsight and maturity. Maybe, you know, maybe I made her uncomfortable and I feel really bad about that. I, I, I know I apologize to her and I'm hoping we can move forward. You know, if he had kind of taken that kind of approach, an approach that was not about... He would have lost his job. He would have, but he was, he was going to lose his job anyway. And if he had chosen not to uh, consciously drag these women through social media fucking hell in order to clear his own name. Like, if he had taken that approach, I actually think there would have been a way for him to redeem himself and maybe stay on as MPP. I don't think he would have been able to stay on. No, no, the party looked at it as way too toxic. They had already lost Rick Dykstra, Dykstra the party president. They were in a culture where, um, you know, there's virtually zero tolerance for this. And you had people you had people in the party immediately come out and, and basically, you know, throw them to the wolves. And I think um, but, but, the but, people who did that well, are, are standing by it, too. I mean, you know, I heard from somebody in the PC party just in the last couple of days who told me, that it's very instructive that not a single person from the higher upper echelons of that party, most of whom were appointed by Patrick Brown, has stood behind him. Nobody. Not not one. Oh, that's damning. That's utterly damning. And like for people who actually work in politics, that is actually the, the main damning thing. That's actually what killed Patrick Brown's leadership. It wasn't the media allegations. It was the fact that his staff bailed on him because that was the most damning thing that could have been done. But I would know. But I would disagree with you. I actually think that if he had if he had uh, given it some time and taken that kind of approach that was that was a little bit more measured and a little bit more self-reflective, he probably could have built a redemption narrative around time. himself. But now he has made himself. No, no. But 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 here's the other point that I'm going to make. Now he has made himself so utterly polarized and so utterly toxic that any PC person who 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 stands up for this guy is going to go down with him a and b if you want indicative if you want a, a, the, the clearest possible sign that this man would have been a disastrous leader and a disastrous premier let's point out this one obvious fact he managed he's waited to do this redemption campaign till before the election if he actually put his party first, if he actually put the, the success of the Ontario PC parties above his own ego and his own reputation, he would have at the very least waited until after the election to start pulling this bullshit. By doing this now, he's sucking all the other air out of the room for the other leaders. He's making sure that we're all talking about him and not Carolyn Marini or Christine Elliott or Doug Ford. And he's basically putting his personal choices and his personal liability and pinning it right to the, the forefront of the PC party reputation. And like that alone should disqualify him from leadership. Well, so this goes to the first Ling rule of Ontario politics, which is never underestimate the ability of Kathleen Wynne's opponents to shoot themselves directly in the face. This episode of Oppo is brought to you by FreshBooks. Normally, I write all of my invoices in MS Paint, but I've recently learned that there is a better way. I have been using FreshBooks for a couple of weeks now, and let me tell you, it has saved my life. I am not even kidding you right now. I would be in this closet recording this episode, but also crying if it weren't for FreshBooks. They are keeping me on track. <laughs> they're keeping my expenses okay. Most importantly, they're keeping the receipts out of the mouth of my child. He eats all the things. So uh, if you are a freelancer, if you are trying to uh, run a small business, I I really cannot stress how great this software is. Yeah. With this software, you can send a grown-up invoice in just 30 seconds, which is something that I have never been able to do. You can set yourself up to get paid online and manage your expenses from their phone app. To find out all the ways that FreshBooks will transform how you deal with your paperwork, go to freshbooks.com slash oppo and enter oppo in the how did you hear about us section. 
And definitely do that because when you tell FreshBooks that you found them through Oppo, that's great for us. So uh, if you use FreshBooks and you like it, please let them know that. Last week, the government of Canada announced a whole new deal for First Nations people across this country. They will create a, quote, recognition and implementation of rights framework. I don't know what that means. It's it's a great thing. I mean, like, so Jen, we've already talked about this a little bit. You are of this crazy, skeptical, nutjob view that this whole thing is a facade and doesn't mean anything. I tend to think this is actually a pretty massive deal. In the last week, the Prime Minister announced this new reconciliation framework. Now, this is actually a pretty big step forward, I think. This is Ottawa finally saying that we're not going to do this dumb piecemeal back-and-forth step-by-step process to actually advancing Indigenous rights in this country. They're doing something significant to actually figure out how to do it for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And honestly, you know, I tend to agree with the prime minister when he says that indigenous rights and indigenous issues are some of the most important things facing the country over the next couple of decades. And really, there's no way to actually address those things unless you create some sort of strategy for how you're going to tackle it. That is adorably optimistic of you, Justin. (laughs) Could you please explain to me uh, for a moment what, what exactly they're doing? I, I literally, I've tried reading this press release four times. I don't understand what they're doing. As far as I can tell, it has something to do with them creating a consultation process that will create some kind of legislation sometime in the next uh, year, uh, by the way, which before the next election, to do stuff. What stuff? Well, yeah, I, but like, legis- what, what does that it's mean? legislation. I mean, you, you, you to can't do really what? wave away legislation. Are they, look, are they I putting mean, in a new Indian to, Act? Is that what we're talking about here? Because I, I, I mean, that would be great. Look, nobody here is going to argue for the current status quo for First Nations people. Like, I'm not going to argue for that. You're not going to argue for that. I would just point out that this government, not only on First Nations issues, but on particularly on First Nations issues, has a tendency to do these sorts of feel-good, sound-good type announcements that don't actually do anything or come to anything. And I mean, or, or, or when they do come to something, come to like a total PR and optics disaster. I will point to the missing murdered Indigenous women inquiry right now, where they can't even seem to keep staff in the freaking door. So uh, I'm not super optimistic with a government that is now coming forward and saying we're going to completely overhaul all of the rights and self-governments frameworks of the 650 plus First Nations in this Canada in the next 365 days. I mean, these are generational problems. Yeah, but absolutely. But you can't actually fix them unless you actually prepare some sort of legislation or, you know, guide to how you're going to address them. And there's a couple of things that actually mentioned specifically in this announcement. Boil water advisories, primary and secondary education on reserves, and further steps towards reconciliation. Now, yeah, I agree with you. A lot of that language sounds sort of meaningless and, you know, boilerplate. But And familiar. But, and here's the big but, is that we know exactly what steps need to get taken towards reconciliation because we have the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And the Prime Minister, I think, in a move that a lot of people laughed at, said he was going to do his best to actually address every single call for action from oh. that report that applies to the federal government. And, you know, those oh, are oh, real wait, wait, wait. things. He said he, no, no, he said he would actually uh, agree to do all of them, including ones like uh, support the UN um, declaration for for uh, Indigenous people. Sorry, what was what's the name here? What's what am I looking? UN declaration. UNDRIP. UN declaration of the rights of Indigenous peoples, which would effectively give Indigenous people total veto over things like pipelines across their land. You're going to tell me that any federal government is going to agree to that? I'm extremely skeptical. Uh, you know who actually said that? The Supreme Court effectively said that in saying that. No, the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is still hearing cases. The Supreme Court said that federal government has an obligation to consult. So far, the Supreme Court has not given First Nations people total and un- unrestricted veto over over 
over pipeline UNDRIP projects. doesn't doesn't give the absolute right for First Nations to veto. It does actually allow for some space for governments to decide whether or not it's consultation uh, that is necessary, whether or not uh, it's being done on ancestral lands that they do have title over. So, you know, I hear, yeah, the, I hear that line a lot that UNDRIP is this carte blanche for First Nations people to just start governing the entire country, and it's nonsense. UNDRIP is actually... Um, it, well, it, then it, why it, isn't it, it being implemented? That's a great Look, question. We have we have, <laughs> we have, we have Jody question. Wilson. We brought, no, we, we have Jody Wilson Rebold. She went on to Power and Politics, and she talks about ways to uh, operationalize or utilationalize or some other crazy, stupid, made-up verb this particular declaration. And like at no point has this government agreed to just implement this thing. So like that's just one example of this government saying it's going to do one thing and then coming back with something feel good and wishy mashy and, and semantically flawed that that doesn't actually get anything done. Now I'm also going to point out here that this is not the first time that the government of Canada said that they're going to completely overhaul the First Nations government's framework. Blah 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 blah. Chrétien tried to do it with the white papers in 1969. That was an absolute and total disaster, and he had to completely walk that back, and rightly so. And then again in 2002, we had the First Nations Governance Act, which Martin had to step back entirely. So every time a liberal government has attempted to do this, it's been an absolute disaster. Oh, I, I, will I couldn't agree, agree with more. You on, I, will, I would love to have my cynicism proved completely wrong on this. And by the way, I actually think that we need to have some like a real expert on First Nations issues on this show to really bear warrant this. And, you know, we're just talking about this stuff just after it's just come out. But there's one thing that I, the one thing I want to point out, though, because this is important, Jen. There's one thing that's very important, and it's that in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report, there were not calls to action for Indigenous people. They were calls to action for white folks and the government of Canada. And so, you know, as a political press, we've done a really shitty job of holding the government to account on the promises it did make. So when Trudeau totally failed to actually reform the Indian Act, uh, the previous Trudeau, you know, we did a really shit job of following up on it. We didn't keep pressure as a political press on the government to actually, you know, take action on this because political journalists don't cover Indigenous issues well. I think that's starting to change, and I think it needs to continue changing, and that's something that I want to keep going at on this show, because I think, uh, you know, for the government to do this sort of uh, reconciliation framework properly, we have to keep tabs on them and make sure they're actually following through and staying on top of these things, uh, and I think I think that might actually happen this time. I'm being optimistic, yes, for, for once. Do you want to know why we're really shitty at this? Because First Nations issues and reforming the, the Indian Act and doing all of these things that absolutely needs to be done is really complicated and difficult. It's not something that you actually get done in 365 days in one legislative session and, and fix things, bada bing, bada boom. The time frame of this alone is making me intensely skeptical because I think that you have something that uh, needs to be fixed over a long period of time and for which there is probably no single magic bullet. And instead, what we have is a government trying to get something through the door before the next election. That makes me skeptical. And I, I would love to be wrong. Let me just say that. I would love to be wrong on this. You're going to be. I hope you're going to be. Because we all live our lives trapped in bias-confirming mill gristling echo chambers, it is time for Red Stream Blue Stream, where Jen and I peer into each other's news feeds. Jen, you're the political equivalent of truck nuts. Tell me what your fascist cronies are whining about this week. Conservatives in my feed are still hating on carbon taxes uh, in light of Carolyn Mulroney, Ontario PC Premier candidates, kind of waffling on, on carbon taxes and falling in line with uh, the Doug Ford anti-carbon tax brigade. That seems to have brought up all of this long-standing, deep-seated hatred of any kind of carbon pricing. This is a really issue on which I'm totally torn because on one hand, I completely understand that 
any targets that Canada makes uh, will be largely insignificant in a world where all of the greenhouse gas emissions are pumped out by China, India, and the U.S. anyway. On the second hand, I'm like, you have to show moral leadership. You show moral leadership by being ahead of something. And if we're going to be ahead of something, then, you know, carbon taxes are probably the best market-based mechanism by which to cut down our own greenhouse gas emissions. On the other hand, I'm going like, eh, taxes, taxes bad, fuck the government. So like, I'm kind of like, I go back and forth on this particular issue. Also, we all know that climate change isn't real. So that's also a big thing. <laughs> this still kills me. Cap and trade is a conservative market solution for what is clearly a general societal problem. Fine. Carbon taxes, not great. Cap and trade used to be Stephen Harper's preferred method. No, cap and trade so is terrible. Cap and trade is a ter- no. Cap and trade. The bad. California Quebec oh, market man. has worked All right. fantastically we're, we're, well. We're putting, we're putting. It, it involves taking Ugh. money out of your jurisdiction and giving it to other people. Anyway, we're going to put a pin in that because we are so doing a segment on this. Yay! All right, Justin, you're a vice washout outrage monger. Have you a snowflake tear to trip on me? You know what I've actually seen a fair bit of my news feed in the last couple of days is response to this interview uh, from John Honorick in the Globe and Mail where he talks about, well, I mean, A, how the Toronto Star is facing a new round of layoffs and, and, and expense cuts, but more broadly how he's reiterating his need for public money to keep the newspaper industry afloat. My friends are hilariously torn about this. They are torn between wanting to have an effective news media in this country, as we should all want to have, and their general hatred for Canadian newspapers. And it always comes back to Post Media and the evil Dark Lord on the Hill, Paul Godfrey. And it's all wrapped up in this ephemeral love for the CBC. I, I, it's just so interesting to watch all of my friends get into the nitty-gritty of the newspaper business, all while figuring out a way to work it in to bemoan the cuts for the CBC, as though CBC doesn't have enough money already. And it's very interesting to watch. Look, I'm, I'm conflicted on this one because, of course, uh, the CBC does give me money. However, I will say this. I don't think that lefties or righties are going to want a Canadian media landscape that is utterly and completely dominated by the CBC. That is not a recipe for winning for anybody. But we also don't want a landscape where every newspaper is just beholden to the federal government's teat. Yeah, that's also really bad. And can we also just say that, like, all newspaper corporations are equally evil? Like, I'm not really sure that one newspaper corporation gets, like, the... The the, the the pinata or the like for like the, the non-evil pinata. the pinata I don't know, uh, I don't know. okay I'm struggling yeah, here cool Jen anyway they're all terrible so Justin just as we're about to tape the Ontario PCs are holding their first leadership debate among the three candidates vying to replace Patrick Brown is a name that many Torontonians will remember Doug Ford brother of the late Rob Ford, whom, I would argue, really was the template for this crude, off-the-cuff populism that has emerged in a very ugly way in the United States with Donald Trump. This has me thinking about populism in Canada. What sets it apart from populism in the U.S., if anything? So joining us from Tucson is uh, Michael Adams. He's also the author of a recently released book, Could It Happen Here? Canada in the Age of Trump and Brexit. Hi, Michael. Hi. Yeah, guys, uh, I didn't do my homework, and I have not read this book yet. So I'm sitting this one out. Michael, I hope it won't cost you any sales of could it happen here if you give away the answer. But could it happen here? It'd be very difficult. It would be difficult for big demographic reasons and also the political system. Today we find ourselves with 22% foreign born in our country. We have another 20% who are their children. So we are, you know, four in 10. Uh, This is an astounding proportion. 
nothing close to it is matched in Europe or the United States. So anybody who wants to form government in our country needs to appeal to immigrants, to their children, to visible minorities, or they could never hope to form uh, a majority government. You know, Rob Ford is absolutely an example of the populist leader who succeeded to gain power in the most multicultural city in the country. Isn't this idea predicated on the idea that people who are first or second generation Canadian wouldn't fall prey to a populist leader or a populist uprising? They would be pretty silly to do so if his platform was xenophobic, anti-immigration, racist. But Rob Ford's populism was more of of a suburban kind of backlash to the the central city elites that were focusing on bike lanes and uh, streetcars. People are old enough; they might remember that Ontario had Mike Harris with his common sense res- revolution, and we've had populism on the left with the CCF in Saskatchewan. We've had populism on the right, United Farmers of Alberta, and then the Social Credit, and then ultimately with the Reform Party. What I'm hearing you say is that it can happen here. It just won't take the form of a Donald Trump-esque it always, figure. It's always happened here. Uh, we have a history of, of xenophobia, racism, of people not getting along with each other, whether it's Aboriginal or non-Aboriginal, whether it's French and the English, the Catholics and the Protestants. The Irish came and we thought civilization would collapse. Sorry, did I just undermine the thesis of your book there? Uh, did you undermine it by saying that uh, we have a history of xenophobia? Um, no, we have a strong history of it. And, and uh, the fact that we kind of changed in the 50s and certainly in the 1960s, and it's why I think that it's unlikely that a, at least a national political party, and I would say even in the case of provinces like Ontario, just is electorally impossible. But Michael, I mean, isn't that exactly what American pundits were saying back in 2012 when all the pundits were talking about, you know, this demographic tipping point, how Republicans could never win unless they managed to secure a significant portion of non-white voters, that America had simply moved past the majoritarian white voting bloc and that that era was over. And yet four years later, what did we see? We saw the rise of Donald Trump largely coming to power on that very voting block, which was apparently or supposedly trounced by the new demographic realities in America. So what makes Canada so different? Yeah, uh, well, as I said, I I think um, America is and Europe are very different places. Uh, First of all, America has 11 million illegal uh, immigrants in their country. Uh, so they have that legitimate concern. The Europeans have the legitimate concern that all those refugees coming from Africa and the Middle East are entering the continent um, illegally. Uh, Europe also, those countries uh, tend to think of themselves as kind of ethnically pure. They're not, but that's the way they think of themselves and have a great deal of difficulty integrating people who are not of their similar racial, ethnic, uh, religious background. Uh, Canada uh, is a multicultural uh, country. There, the, the, uh, there's no dominant group to which you have to integrate. And we're kind of a model. We're kind of a Petri dish uh, as to whether or not this kind of model can work. 
Michael, I think that there are going to be a lot of listeners who are going to push back to the, on to this idea that Canada isn't as racist as America. We've seen that there's a bit of a mythology around this idea that, that Canada is so much better, so much more progressive, so much more tolerant, so much more accepting. You know, but if you talk to people of color or even if you look at the Colton Bushy trial, you know, there's some evidence that, in fact, that we we do have race problems here in this country. And, you know, you'd mentioned Quebec with uh, the xenophobia surrounding niqab and, and, and Muslims in particular. Um, I would say out here in the prairies, uh, if we look at, you know, the treatment of First Nations and Aboriginal people, the idea that Canada is less racist than America just because we didn't have sort of the institutionalized slavery that America did to the same degree, you know, I think a lot of listeners would, would reject that idea. I think a lot of people do. Any Anybody I, uh, you know, that's why I wrote the book. I mean, anybody I ask, could it happen here? They say, of course it could happen here. And, uh, you know, um, take the shooting in, in 2017 in Las Vegas. That chap killed 58 people. He killed hundreds more. It was the 273rd a mass shooting in the United States in 2017. Uh, Canada, in the same year, 2017, had one mass shooting in Quebec City. So, obviously, people would say, well, you see, it can happen here. But if you think that there's not a qualitative difference between 273 and 1, well, um, I guess we've gone to different Mm -hmm. schools of arithmetic. So... For me to say that a Trump-style leader are li- unlikely to happen here, maybe it seems like a trivial statement, but I don't think it is for the people of, of, of different races and ethnicities who find that they're getting along in our country. But I am not making the case that Canada is perfect. I'm just saying that the likelihood of a, a, xen- a xenophobe leading a political party and, it beca- and it having the kind of power in Canada that Trump and his uh, gang have in the United States, I think is is unlikely. That kind of does take me to the conversation around Doug Ford, who is right now, of course, running to be leader of the Ontario PC party. But I mean, what do you think about his electoral prospects and what do you think about his, his approach here? Well, I would say that it is very much in line with the Canadian tradition of hmm. populism. Now, I don't know whether they teach history in schools anymore, but some people might uh, have read about the rebellions of 1837 and 38 and in what was then what upper and lower canada canada east and canada west uh, later you know where and that was anti-elitist definitely populist people were sick of what was called the family compact so do you think that Doug Ford has a chance here or are you trying to say that Doug Ford's brand of populism wouldn't be in the mold of a Donald Trump like figure Oh, I, I actually didn't make any reference I know, I'm, to Doug I'm, I'm Ford bringing you back there. Uh, Doug Ford uh, has a very good chance of becoming leader of the uh, uh, Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario. Because you have a government that is unpopular, and just as Mike Harris replaced the government of Bob Ray in 1995, John Diefenbaker was the greatest populist uh, in Canadian history who swept to power in 1957 and 58, sweeping out the the liberals who had been in power for the previous, most of the previous 50 years. I'm trying to bring this all back to the thesis of your book. Could it happen here? I guess the question is, what do you mean by it? You know, could a populist leader emerge in Canada a la Doug Ford? 
yes, that could happen. Oh, of course. But that doesn't necessarily mean a populist leader that's primarily motivated by xenophobic anti-immigration instincts. Oh, of course. Of, of course it wouldn't. There, anti-elitism is much more the tradition in Canada. That the, the family compact, the crowd that's in power, that's been in power too long, that's rewarding its friends. This is the history of Canada. Elites get in power too long, they become arrogant, and someone uh, rallies the people to say it's time to throw the scoundrels out and uh, new scoundrels. We elect new scoundrels, and then they become an elite, and then somebody else has to come and throw those scoundrels out. God bless Westminster parliamentary politics. However, I'm just trying to make the distinction here because we are, we're, we're acknowledging that populism is a feature of the Canadian system and not a bug. But at the same time, we're saying that that type of populism is of a distinct kind and flavor, and it's very different from what we're seeing in the U.S. right now. I, I, I can't hear your question. I'm sorry. Sorry. Um, so what you're telling me is that I've completely misunderstood your book, that in fact it can happen here and probably will. It happens all the time. The question is, is it going to be, um, it, it, is it, are the incidences are going to be like inoculations against the disease that we don't get? Will there be pushback? Uh, will there, will there be, uh, will we find the middle way? Um, and uh, of course, it's like, Everything that we will see everywhere in the world will happen in Canada. The question is, will they become normative? Will it become institutionalized? Okay. Um, I think those are pretty much all my questions. I'm sorry it has been so hard to hear me, and it's been so muffled. Um, You know, have you ever taken an ear test? I mean, a hearing test? You know why they do go... Oh, is it like that? Beep, 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 beep. And then you press a little button? Um, Okay. Well, thank you, Michael Adams. That was Oppo. I'm glad you learned something, Jen. Well, I figured out how to use my microphone this time. We want to know what you think, so send us an email at oppo at com. Last week, you made our debut episode the number one show in Canada on Apple Podcasts. Thanks, but we want more. We want all the reviews. So write a review, give us a rating, spread the word. That's how this whole thing will work and keep happening. And if you haven't hit subscribe on Oppo, do it now. The next episode of Oppo will be out in two weeks. Canada Land's original deep dive politics show Commons will be out next week. This episode was produced by Jesse Brown for Canada Land Media. Music by Nathan Burley. I have the last word this week, and that word is closet. 